Hey guys, Summer here. So I promised uh, about a month and some change ago that I would share with you guys the talk that I gave while I spoke at a conference in DC. Uh, it was the first conference that sovereign nations did in Washington, DC. And I spoke there with men like my dad and Dr. Steve Lawson and Dr. Jordan Peterson. And it was really, really cool. And um, I've never done anything like this before, but basically I was asked to come talk about feminism today. And uh, if you've listened to this show for any amount of time, you know that Joy and I, um, well, we care a lot <laughs> about this topic and we have a lot to say. So anyway, I promised I would share the audio with you guys. So here it is. Have you had your soup today? And the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. <laughs> pounds, pounds. Hi. So about a year ago, my friend Joy and I started a podcast aimed towards women, although our audience has ended up being at least 50% men. And we could not have known then what it was going to turn into. We started our podcast believing that most content aimed towards women today, secular or otherwise, is garbage. <laughs> it's flowers and feelings and sisterhood of the traveling pants. We had never been satisfied with women's ministries and women's podcasts and particularly uh, literature aimed towards women. And we both felt that there had to be a market for content aimed towards women that was the opposite of all of that. So we started our podcast on a lark and it turns out that there is an audience for what we're trying to do. And a large part of our message is that we all need to get over ourselves and take responsibility for our thoughts and our actions. We need to be people who know the gospel and can articulate it. We need to be people who can spot false teaching and repudiate it well. So uh, we got the attention of self-identified feminists rather quickly. And so we decided that we needed to face the many-headed monster of feminism straight on, which is why I'm here today. I'm here because I believe that modern feminism is nothing more than the repackaging of an ideology that is responsible for the deaths of millions of people in the last century. What Joy and I found out when we released our series on feminism was, number one, that we were not alone in our feelings on the topic, which is a very good thing. And number two, that feminists have a notably hard time making distinctions the more I engage with the feminist worldview, the more I find this out. So this is interesting to me particularly because our God, the God who is the same in both the Old and the New Testaments, is a God of distinctions, right? So God reveals himself in scripture as holy, and we know that we can't water his holiness down just to the concept of sacredness or specialness, although those are true. So the Hebrew word for holy that God uses to describe himself is very specifically in reference to his set apartness, to his uniqueness, to his difference 
from his creation. He is so separate and distinct from us, and that is a very good thing. And one of the very first things we see him do in scripture is make distinctions. He separates the light and the darkness, the water and the land. He makes them distinct. And he also does this in his creation of man, something that I think our our culture can hardly bear to hear. But he made us in his image, two different distinct types of us as male and female. Now, my thesis on why Christians in particular don't need feminism is that we already have a worldview that gives men and women equal value and worth in that we are both made in the image of God, separate and distinct. And feminism as we know it today hates this concept in every way because in our creation, God made us different. And he said that it was good, not different in worth, but different in nature and different in our roles, different in what we are called to do. We are different in our abilities and in our biology. Feminists are frequently unable to make this distinction, the necessary and good distinction between our role and our value, but it's one that God made when he stamped his image upon both genders. So part of the difficulty in discussing feminism is that it's simply not a monolith and it has not remained static over time. There are things that the uh, first wave feminists did, for example, that I sincerely hope I would have stood for too. For example, it's impossible to study them without acknowledging that the majority of the movement, the first wave of feminists, was made up of abolitionists, women who were as involved in the abolitionist movement as they were in seeking the right uh, for women to vote, own property, etc. There was a time when feminism stood against legitimate oppression, and I do feel duty-bound not to gloss over the role they played in the abolition of slavery in the United States. I'm also thankful that they fought to change laws regarding women and property rights and things like that. The second wave of feminists, though, were largely responsible for the sexual revolution. And despite the leaders during this time sharing an almost universal hatred for their creator, they are arguably more difficult to separate from in public discourse, at least linguistically. The reason for that is that the second wave feminist main focus was irresponsibly and completely dishonestly labeled as reproductive rights. So the concept of reproductive rights, and we're still talking about this misnomer today, is mainly focused around the topic of abortion. The reason that it's a dishonest phrase is because abortion can only take place after reproduction has already occurred. And the second wave feminists, like many in our country today, don't believe that the preborn person who was just reproduced has any rights at all. So to compound the issue, reproductive rights is also frequently used in discussion of sex trafficking and slavery, which, of course, all of us would condemn. So on the one hand, we have to reject the phrase reproductive rights because it's a lie when used in the context of abortion. And on the other hand, if we are to love God and love our neighbor, we have to affirm that sex trafficking is evil and must be ended. So it's a serious problem of distinction that cannot be made in 140 characters on Twitter, which is why many in my generation have a hard time engaging on these topics and making these kinds of distinctions at all. As I mentioned before, I believe that 
Feminism at large has a serious problem with making proper distinctions, but the larger problem is a problem ultimately of definitions. So this last, um, this last January, I went out to the Women's March on Trump's inauguration day to talk to the nasty women holding signs and try to get a feel for why they were there. And by the way, I don't, I don't call them nasty women to be derogatory. It's a phrase that they put on their own t-shirts. I talked to one woman who was holding a sign that said that she had 99 problems and that the patriarchy was all of them. So I thought, great. Finally, someone who can identify the patriarchy. (laughs) Surely, if they were the source of all of her pain and suffering, then she could tell me who they are. So I asked her, who is the patriarchy and where do they meet? And she just stared at me. I could see in that moment that she had never once questioned the narrative of the elusive and hardly ever defined patriarchy, but she did accept that they are the source of all of her earthly troubles. And that's where we find ourselves today. We find ourselves at a point in history when so much of our cultural narrative is defined and shaped by men and women who have no concept of history at all. The narrative of the elusive patriarchy is accepted because we live in a time when one's personal narrative is the apotheosis of their being. And what I mean by that is what postmodernism has given us is an obsession with self. And when you become obsessed with yourself, you become obsessed with your feelings and your feelings become the final arbiter of truth into the postmodernist. That's totally fine. Because postmodernism is radical relativism, which is the idea that what might be true for you doesn't have to be true for me. This is why we had that viral video a few years ago of this guy. He was interviewing people on college campuses and he asked them, hey, if I told you I was a six foot tall Asian woman, would you say I'm right or I'm wrong? And of course, I mean, the guy, he was a five foot six white male, but nevertheless, Almost all of the students told him that maybe he wasn't wrong. Maybe if he felt like he was a six foot tall Asian woman, then he was a six foot tall Asian woman. And it was totally painful to watch these college students attempt to answer consistently based on a postmodern worldview. It reduced them to utter insanity. They had no basis upon which they could tell him that he was not a six foot tall Asian woman. So, When you live as though your perception is reality, what usually happens is you actually become a tyrant. And I learned this in my years of being a manager in customer service. So part of being successful in the customer service realm is behaving as though your customer's perception of the service you're giving them is true and right 100% of the time. This means that when an angry customer sends the steak you delivered to their table back to the kitchen... The proper response of a successful employee in that scenario is to apologize profusely, take the steak, and have it remade without complaint, regardless of how that might, you know, mess up the line in the kitchen or whether or not the steak was made properly in the first place and so on. So excellent customer service demands that you live as though your customers' perceived needs are your reality. And I worked in that industry long enough to know that the people who understood that, like the customers who understood that, uh, they knew that that their perceptions were going to be treated as though it dictated truth. They almost always acted like tyrants. Of course, radical relativism and perceptions equaling truth don't work on a large scale because only so many tyrants can occupy a single space. 
And it's impossible to discuss modern feminism without understanding the profound effect that postmodernism has had on society. I would argue that postmodernism is so prolific because it caters to our very sin nature. We all want to be the ones that determine truth. The first lie ever told was from the serpent who told Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit because surely she would not die. Eve's desire to abandon God's truth for a lie is alive and well in all of us today. And postmodernism caters to that desire to be the one who determines what is true. But it's not just the rot of postmodernism that has created the poisonous ideology of feminism today. In order to discuss modern feminism, you have to understand their doctrine of intersectionality. The concept of intersectional feminism was officially coined the year I was born in 1989 by a woman named Kimberly Crenshaw. The basis for the concept is much older than that, however, because Crenshaw was also something called a critical race theorist. So as far as I can tell, critical theory is just a repackaging of good old Marxism. We know that critical theory was designed by neo-Marxists who fled from communism in the 60s, and they came to Columbia University. And the 60s, as you can imagine, were not the most popular time <laughs> to own the label of Marxism, as Marxism had just arguably claimed millions and millions of lives in the decades prior. Nevertheless, according to these theorists now camping out at Columbia University, a critical theory may be distinguished from a traditional theory according to a specific practical per purpose. And stick with me here because this is really important. So a theory is critical to the extent that it seeks human, quote, emancipation from slavery, acts as a liberating influence, and works to create a world which satisfies the needs and powers of human beings. And I didn't make that up. That's their own definition of what they were trying to accomplish. So while Marxism originally mostly had to do with a deep sense of economic injustice, the pitting of the rich against the poor, the neo-Marxists took this idea and expanded it out to cover any instance of the seemingly oppressed versus the oppressor. This is why the alliance between postmodern thinking and this neo-Marxist ideology is so dangerous, because if your perception equals truth and you perceive that you are oppressed, then you must be oppressed. And you also get to decide who the oppressor is. It gets worse when you throw the concept of intersectionality on top of it, because intersectionality gives you layers of oppression. So intersectionality is the idea that social oppression does not simply apply to single categories of identity, such as race, gender, sexual orientation, class, etc., but to all of them in an interlocking system of hierarchy and power. And to the postmodernist, power is all there is. It is so deeply ignorant of history and blind to anything being meaningful outside of power. And it's driven by a deep resentment toward any group you believe might have more power than you. This is why that sweet girl at the Women's March that I mentioned earlier was so angry at the elusive patriarchy because she had been told, both through the media and especially universities, that men inherently have always had more power than women. Therefore, men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed. 
I heard Camille Pollyanna talk she did with Dr. Peterson recently argue that these beliefs are deeply ignorant of history. She talked about how only having a modern lens through which to look at the world can cripple your ability to think critically. And you'd think talking to feminists today that there was never a time when you couldn't, you know, go to the store and buy a package of bacon or ground beef. And you guys, if you think folding laundry is work today, try doing laundry a hundred years ago. The fact that it wasn't long ago that it was the men who were out hunting in some cultures for weeks at a time in order to bring back food, while the women remain behind caring for children and doing housework so grueling we can hardly imagine, uh, hardly imagine it, is lost on most of us. And it wasn't just that the women got to sit at home. Part of it was just biology. Pregnant women, nursing women, older women, they weren't the ones that were physically capable of doing what the young men had to do in order to keep civilization alive. And it had nothing to do with power plays. It wasn't that the women were stuck at home because they weren't viewed as useful. Although it is true that many societies in many places have viewed women poorly. But again, we have to be able to make distinctions. In the history of the world, no society has been perfect. No people group has always been treated rightly across generations and across time. But it was not the oppression of the patriarchy that has largely kept women at home while men have gone out to do the dangerous tasks of building civilizations and fighting wars. It has been true since Adam and Eve that men and women contribute to society in different ways. And because of our distinct biologies, we will naturally take on different roles. But the postmodernist has no category for this, since their only lens is through one of power. And the concept of women at home, thanks mostly to feminists, is offensive and oppressive to them. So the matrix of oppression, their phrase, not mine, by the way, is so important to the modern feminist that to question it is to instantaneously become the oppressor. So according to intersectionality, the more oppressed you are, the deeper your understanding is of life and society. I was listening to a popular podcast the other day, and I don't know what the impetus for the discussion was, but the two hosts of the podcast were issuing an apology. They were apologizing because they were white women, and a black woman had written into the show to tell them that something they had said in a previous episode was racist. So the co-host spent around 15 minutes explaining how they didn't mean to be racist. But as white women, they probably just couldn't help it. They said that privilege had blinded them to how what they were saying might be perceived. So the proper response in this mess was to admit that they probably had been racist, not to ask questions or seek understanding, but to be an ally by admitting their privilege and shutting up and listening. This is why Christina Hoff Summers calls intersectionality a conspiracy theory, because ultimately, if you question the person more oppressed than you, if you want to have a dialogue with that person, it only proves that you are part of the problem, making it a system of belief that cannot be questioned, because the perceptions and feelings of the oppressed are ultimately immune to discussion. And further, if you aren't at the bottom of the many layers of victimhood and oppression, then you just automatically lack insight and understanding into whatever social issue is being discussed. Well, because of that, 
I believe that intersectionality is cannibalism, which is why I have hope (laughs) that as dangerous and pervasive as it is, I have hope that it just can't last. And if you think I'm being dramatic, uh, the same woman, Christina Hoff Summers, tells the story of a women's conference she attended in the 90s, where the conference, which had taken on the doctrine of intersectionality, had the participants organize into small groups based on their, quote, healing needs. The groups quickly disintegrated in attempts to weed out who was the most oppressed among each group. She says that members of the black lesbian group couldn't get along because those who had white partners were seen as having more privilege than the members who had black partners. New identities even emerged, and those identities were quick to issue new demands on the other groups based on their perceived oppression. Being tolerant used to be the chief virtue among the far left and the radical feminists, but it's almost a joke anymore because we all know how intolerant the tolerance police can be. Their jig was up years ago because their idea of tolerance was never really about being tolerant. I would argue that the new chief virtue being espoused among postmodernists and neo-Marxists under the guise of intersectionality is empathy. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against empathy. Being seen and understood as a basic human desire, and it can be a great thing. I think the story of Hagar in the book of Genesis, uh, how she was so mistreated that she ran away. You know, she preferred to be in the desert on her own than to continue being treated the way she was back home. And so God sent an angel to her and that angel blessed her. And Hagar's response of gratefulness was to call God the God who sees me. The Psalms, too, frequently praise God for how he sees his people in their pain. And I mean, what a comforting thing that is. I see it with my own children, how often the bumps and scrapes they get suddenly become better and less painful when I see them and pay attention to them. And honestly, this is just human nature. The problem with intersectional empathy is that intersectionality teaches that you can't possibly understand the oppression or pain of a group that you don't belong to or specifically a group more oppressed than you. An inability to relate to another's matrix of oppression is just inherent in their worldview. So what I frequently see among my peers who have consciously or unconsciously imbibed this secular dogma is that legitimate attempts at empathy are often scorned if they're coming from someone who happens to be, you know, higher up than them on the rungs of the power hierarchy. Now you have to understand And this is very, very important. A soft Christianity has no answer to an intersectional worldview. The longer I speak with Christians, the more aware I become of how dangerous a watered-down gospel is. It's amazing to me how many times a week I come across Christians who have bought the gospel of be nice, hook, line, and sinker. So many among us believe that Jesus came and died a bloody death on the cross so we could be nice to people. The message of the gospel is an offense to the world, and the fact that Christians think making the message more palatable or making Christianity about who can seem the nicest might work out in the end is preposterous. Intersectionality has as its chief of sins, a lack of empathy. And this fits very well with the gospel of be nice. And I think that that's why Christians are willing to give a nod to this mess. We just want people to like us, you know, 
We just want to fill the pews. And pragmatism has been an awful stain on the church over the last 30 or so years in particular. I remember about, uh, about 10 years ago as a teenager, coming to the realization that not everyone who I thought was my friend was my friend. And the way I could determine a real friend from a fake one was that people who actually cared for me were the ones who would say the hard things to me. They were the ones who would tell me something that was hard for me to hear, but it was for my benefit in the long run. And, you know, Proverbs talks about how wounds from a friend are faithful. I think that faith is an investment. It's an understanding that what might hurt to hear right now is the thing that will benefit me in the future. And we need to go back to that understanding of truth, how it's not always easy to hear. It might not make us feel warm and fuzzy in the moment, but it is important nonetheless. Real love, real care says and does the hard thing. And this seems entirely lost on my generation. The desire for everything to be palatable and no one to get their feelings hurt is infantile and dangerous. It stunts growth, particularly spiritual growth, and it feeds straight into the postmodern obsession with feelings that we see all around us. If you think that's not the case, perhaps we just don't run in the same circles, or perhaps it's been particularly infectious among my generation. I've lost friends over this stuff. I've been rejected by believers as a potential ear for their pain because I'm white. So I just can't possibly understand. I'm lacking too many layers of oppression, you see. I've seen groups of women torn apart over this. Christian women. Women in particular, I think, are vulnerable to the message of intersectionality and critical theory because if you simply look at the murky surface, you would think it's about understanding and empathy. And I know very few women who don't want to be seen as understanding and empathetic. I would argue that that desire is a vital part of our nurturing nature. Women, I mean, we don't like being viewed as disagreeable. And this worldview is specifically designed to label its detractors as the most disagreeable people imaginable. I experienced this a few weeks ago. I wrote an article on the, uh, you know, the Me Too hashtag that went viral. If you don't know what that is, it was a hashtag started by a feminist that began in the wake of the Weinstein scandal where women were encouraged to post the hashtag if they had experienced sexual assault or, or harassment. And, uh, you know, because of the Weinstein scandal, it just, it really took off. The crux of my article was a sincere desire for any of my believing friends who had shared the hashtag because they had experienced sexual assault or harassment to remember the God who sees them. Remember that story of, you know, Hagar from earlier, because I believe that Christ is our redeemer and our savior and he cares for us. I believe one of the most loving things we can do for brothers and sisters when they are in pain is to remind them that although they have experienced something terrible, God has not left them. He sees them and he cares for them. We do not have to experience the fallenness of the world alone. God is not ambivalent toward his children's pain. 
The process from healing from a terrible experience is not immediate. It is a process. But that doesn't change our call as Christians to do the work of casting our burdens on the Lord. As I mentioned before, feminists and increasingly our entire society has a problem with making distinctions. I was accused of a lack of empathy towards victims. I was accused of being tone deaf for offering hope and encouragement because you see, these harmful worldviews idolize victimhood. The very idea that there is freedom and hope and comfort in Christ, however long that healing may take, is offensive in their worldview because oppression imbues one with moral status and insight. A removal of layers of oppression is a removal of power and status in the matrix of oppression. I was shocked to discover that for many Christians, pointing people to Christ as our Redeemer is extremely controversial if it challenges a narrative of perennial oppression, and that is just how pervasive and embedded into the church these worldviews have become. So not to belabor the point about just how dangerous and fake, I mean, it's so fake, the intersectional doctrine of empathy is. Just last week, I read an article about a woman in the Netherlands who was in her 20s. She uh, she had been a victim of sexual abuse. She was diagnosed with PTSD and depression, and she was anorexic. She underwent intensive therapy, and despite improvement in her mental health, she still did not want to live anymore. So she was legally murdered by lethal injection by the Dutch government. Now, I don't have time to take on the topic of euthanasia today, uh, which is something I find abhorrent and disgusting to be euphemistic. I probably don't have to explain that I grieved for this woman who was hurt so deeply she did not want to live anymore. I went ahead and read the comment section underneath this particular article, and I was disappointed but not surprised to find that anyone who expressed grief that the woman had chosen to end her life was accused of not being empathetic, of simply not being able to understand. And while it's true that not all of us can understand the absolute horror she was subjected to, I mean, that's true. The idea that we are powerless, we are powerless to love and support victims of abuse and encourage them to live and come alongside them in their grief and give them hope. If we haven't also been abused just as horrifically as they have is stupid. Maybe the average person can't understand her pain, but how utterly useless are we if we can't help the legitimate the legitimately hurting among us this is how backwards intersectionality is this is how wrong matrix matrices of oppression are this is how dangerous they are false compassion for this woman helped end her life being a victim can absolutely, in some cases, give you a unique insight to suffering. The Me Too hashtag made people feel comforted because they knew they weren't alone and someone else could understand. But sometimes being a victim of something so awful and terrible as this woman experienced means that it's the insight 
It's the hope. It's the encouragement. It's the love from others, people who have not been plunged into absolute darkness that is needed the most. It follows then that intersectionality teaches that the more victimized a group is, the more insight and perception they have into social issues that the rest of us just can't grasp. And this makes the feelings and narratives of oppressed groups unquestionable. In case I haven't made it perfectly clear, when I use the phrase oppressed groups, I am not arguing that each group that owns this label is legitimately oppressed, merely that they believe they are oppressed. I don't think the danger of perpetual victimization language can be overstated in our current socio-political climate. I started thinking about this when I started doing pro-life work. It's always been amazing to me what humanity has been able to do to each other. And when I look at the great atrocities from the past several hundred years, slavery, multiple genocides in Europe and Asia between the 20s and the 50s, and our current Holocaust in the womb, I see a theme. In all of these scenarios, the violent perpetrators do two things to make their violence more acceptable. The first is they dehumanize the other. The Nazis argued that the Jews were parasites. Slave owners argued that blacks weren't fully human. Pro-choicers deny that the unborn are human. And two, they argue that they are actually the ones being victimized. So the narrative was that the Jews were bringing down society, taking what rightfully belonged to the Germans, making the Germans the victims. The blacks would ruin society if they were freed. Women's lives would be ruined if they had to give birth. And the untold millions of lives that have been taken in the name of this false victimization is a number we can hardly wrap our heads around. You see, this all goes back to the Imago Dei, the fact that we were all made in the image of God, and even the secularists know it. They understand that if you can take away that image, if you can convince the public at large that a certain group of people are not made in the same image that you are, then they do not carry the same inherent value. And it's okay, even noble, to treat them like animals, send them to concentration camps, or rip them apart limb from limb in the womb. It's astonishing to me that what we are seeing taught in our universities and just accepted at face value by the media and ever increasingly among anyone in my age range is that these old, recycled, murderous ideologies are acceptable. I mean, (laughs) try. Try questioning them publicly. Try offering a lens for a problem that doesn't include the matrix of oppression and see what happens. I almost detest calling intersectionality intersectionality because it's really just an unholy alliance between neo-Marxism and postmodernism, and the feminists certainly don't own it. You need to understand that feminism has been poisoned to the church and not just in the area of intersectionality. As I began to study the history of feminism and as I began to look for solid critiques on the topic, I was disappointed to discover a lack of prominent Christian voices on it. In fact, what was easiest to find 
were Christians who were sympathetic to feminism or worse, happy to take on the label. They just tagged Christian in front of it and they called themselves Christian feminists. In fact, some of the loudest opposition to my dislike for feminism as a whole has come from those who would label themselves this way. It was almost as if a rejection of the term was a hatred for womanhood itself, which is really interesting because I have never personally felt that feminism was a desire to amplify womanhood or celebrate what women do. Feminists seem to believe that the problem with women is that they aren't men. (laughs) You would think a logical answer to the supposed problem of the patriarchy would be an amplification and appreciation of the matriarchy, but it's not true. It seems to me that feminism is actually a hatred for anything typically associated with women, and particularly with the idea that women were specifically designed to nurture, care, and love their families. Prominent early feminist Emma Goldman, who was a mentor to Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, said that marriage condemned women to lifelong dependency, to parasitism, to complete uselessness, individual as well as social. Susan B. Anthony said, I never felt I could give up my life of freedom to become a man's housekeeper. Ultimately, any thorough study of the most meaningful leaders of any of the waves of feminism would allow you to discover that feminists have a deep and abiding contempt for women choosing to stay in the home. To stay home and raise the next generation is widely accepted as a giving up of one's talents and abilities. Many of the Christian and feminists I've run into believe that Christian feminism means more women should be pastors and preaching from behind the pulpit, mirroring the belief of secular feminists that if only women occupied the same roles as men, then women would be of more use, and probably, by the way, much better at it. They carry an absolute hatred for the roles God has given us. And I want to touch on this very briefly before I conclude. It's particularly important because today is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the church's door. I just finished reading this book that I would highly recommend to you all. It's called Popes and Feminists. And the thesis of the book was fascinating because it finds a link between the Roman Catholic Church's low view of womanhood and the feminists' low view of womanhood. Much like Emma Goldman and Susan B. Anthony, the Pope of Martin Luther's day found marriage to be despicable. He said that one cannot serve God and be married. The Catholic Church, the Reformation knew, would agree with feminism that a married woman at home is useless. But then the Reformers came along and they had a very different view of women and of vocation itself. The reformers said that the work of a wife and mother is valuable, and they agreed with scripture in saying that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Martin Luther said that he could not have done the work that he did had it not been for the help of his wife, Catherine. I would like to affirm with the reformers and against both the Catholic Church and feminism that the most holy and noble calling of women is neither as nuns or as career women, but as women who nurture, grow, beautify and pour themselves out into whatever setting God has placed them in, whether that be as single women or as married women. You see, one of the most offensive messages of scripture 
It's that our lives don't belong to us. Our days, our jobs, our money, it doesn't belong to us. We have been bought with the blood of the word made flesh, and we are called to live our lives in light of that. That means there is no neutrality. All that we have belongs to God. And furthermore, the message of scripture is that there are actually only two types of people, the ones that bend their knee to the king and the ones that live their lives in rebellion. At the foot of the cross, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. They're believers. This attempt to dissect us and pit us against each other based on social constructs for who can be the most oppressed is poison to the church. I cannot think of a worldview more filled with built-in resentment and animosity than that of intersectionality, and as I established earlier, it is just a repackaging of a Marxist worldview that slaughtered millions. This stuff is dangerous and reprehensible, and we should be repudiating it at every turn. Instead, what I am finding are Christians with a weak hermeneutic and a weak understanding of the gospel who are advancing it out of a worldly sense of piety and a great misunderstanding of what it means to love each other. It is insane that we have strayed so far from scripture and bought into this madness. It is insane that anyone who knows the Lord would look to others for affirmation of their value and worth. It is insane that Christians are so quick to want to buy into a worldview that would seek to divide us into little boxes and identify with those who share our gender or our skin color or whatever else have you over allegiance to knowing Christ and Him crucified. The message of feminism is one of self-fulfillment and self-obsession. But the truth is, a life well-lived is a life poured out in sacrifice to others. I am a wife, and I'm a mother, and I am a Christian, and I can testify that I am not immune to the influence of a world that wants me to believe that the hours I spend folding laundry and cooking meals and sweeping floors and changing diapers is a giant waste of my abilities. I am delighted to be with you all today, but frankly, I cannot wait to get home to the dirty faces of my kids. I am extremely challenged at home. I find the monotony of housework the repetition of homework, the sleepless hours, and the dirty floors way more difficult to deal with than what I'm doing at this moment. And it is my privilege to manage those things. God stamped his image upon the other five people in my home, and then he gave them to me and told me to come alongside my husband and take dominion. It is not an easy task. My prayer for my three young daughters and for the women in our culture is that we break ourselves from the shackles of self-obsession and hatred for all the great and God-honoring things we were made to be and do, that we would break the cycle of resentment, learn how to think critically, and how to dialogue wisely that we would get our value and our identity from the only place that can truly give us either, 
and that is from God himself. The cure for the poison that is feminism today is to carry the same torch and respect for womanhood that the reformers did. Thank you.